Welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin. Each episode, I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present, or the one that so obsessed them that it caused them to fail their exams, or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a breakup. Games often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, as I search for my perfect console. My guest today is the American co-creator of one of the longest-running and most popular independent games yet made. In high school, he and his older brother designed adventure games based on fantasy and science fiction stories that they invented together. He taught himself computer programming and received 15 offers to enrol in PhD math programs. At Stanford University, he and his brother continued to work on a procedural adventure game called Dwarf Fortress, in which players guide successive generations of dwarves to build and maintain a fortress. He quit university to work on the game full-time, and in 2011 the New York Times described an early version as perhaps the most complex video game ever made. Dwarf Fortress became his life's work, with a vast and committed cult following, but it remained a work in progress until last December, when version 1.0 finally launched and promptly sold half a million copies. Welcome, Tarn Adams. Hey! <laughs> well, two decades is a really long time to work on a single video game. So what is your emotional state <laughs> right now? You know, you've worked on this thing for all of your adult life and, and now it's finally finished, is it? Oh, no, it's not finished at all. In fact, I mean, I wouldn't even <laughs> call this the 1.0 release. It, it, it would have been like the 0. 0.5 release, but... We didn't want to release a, a zero point anything game commercially, so now it's called the five mm. five zero point zero release. We're just it's like it's like uh, the uh, what Firefox or something, right? These web browsers that just have these ridiculously high version numbers. <laughs> so that's what that's where we're at. But I suppose there's a difference when you, like you say, sort of the game has been um, supported just by donations from players for a very long time, and and now it's available for people to buy. Did that? Did that feel like a milestone for you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's there. I mean, we were we were we were building toward it for like three years or however long we've been working on this, uh, just redoing the <laughs> interface of the game, just, just paying uh, paying our debt, <laughs> our technical <laughs> interface debt that we had been building up, you know, for for uh, twenty years. <laughs> right. Were you were you surprised by how many copies it sold? Uh it was it was kind of. Surprising and not surprising in the sense that uh, we had wishlist numbers, right? That you could kind of just see growing and, and you can see, oh, this is actually going to do okay, probably, right? We had something like 800,000 wishlists when we launched. Gosh. And uh, those were just growing over the years. It never, there was never really a big spike where they grew. It just was a slow, ever since we announced and made the Steam page, you know, back in when, whenever it was 2019 or something like that. Uh, it's just been slowly growing and we we're like, well, how is this going to convert, you know? <laughs> and, uh, it, it did well, it did well. I mean, it, you, you really have no idea. I mean, you, there's, there's people of course put these, these charts up on these sort of game developer, uh, websites and so forth that, that say like, well, sometimes the conversion is, you know, 1% of your wish list will convert. Sometimes it's 250%. And, uh, you know, we, we ended up around, you know, I don't know what it would be, the 30% mark or 40 in the first week, which is what they're talking about. And That's uh, pretty good. Right in the middle. And that's enough for us. Yeah, it's just, it's fine to be a normal game for once, you know? I mean, it doesn't cost anything for someone to add a game to their wish list. It's so, you know, the 40% who actually then, when the game's out, decide to pay for it. That seems pretty good to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it, it was it was more than more than we needed, so... Uh, we're 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 still ecstatic over here. Okay, so this is a a slightly taboo question, but we happen to like be talking on a week when there have been lots of stories in the news about um, how much money the game has made in the last month because the information, I suppose, because of the way Steam works, is somewhat public. Yeah, how does that? How do you feel about people having those discussions in public about? Something that most people consider quite a private matter. Well, for us, because we were doing donations, we we actually found it beneficial to post our monthly earnings, and we've been doing so for you know maybe fifteen years. Why why did you do that? Uh, it be it kind of lets people know how we're doing, and that you know things aren't great when they aren't great, which is when you really need people to show up. 
And they did every single time. Uh-huh. It is just uh-huh. kind of throwing yourself out there. And people can also kind of misinterpret the numbers because our numbers were all kind of pre-tax and split between two people. So uh, people could kind of have an idea that it was more than more than they thought it was and et cetera. But all in all, it was fine. And people could see the dips and that people could also see the um, the bumps um, during, say, Christmas time or a big, big launch uh, of some version or other. And uh, so, so it, it turned out well for us. And actually, over sitting on our forum right now, two days ago, because that's when the money came in, we uh, we just put up one of these posts that was our, our numbers. And uh, I mean, I could just read the last three entries. It says November fourteen thousand, December fifteen thousand six hundred, January seven point. Two million. That's a pretty good January. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were like, "Oh, you, you, you all just did thirty-eight years of of donations in the in a month." I'm like, "Yep, that's 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 how it turned out." Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, do, I mean, I, I feel I feel slightly icky just even asking the question, but I think it is interesting, you know. Especially, I've always been kind of interested in, particularly indie game devs, because. You know, the people making Call of Duty, like no one really questions their success. But if it's like a really small outfit, it feels like this stuff's a bit more scrutinized. So um, I appreciate you being honest, but it seems like you're very open anyway with your with your players and, and with the public about it. Sure. Yeah. And, and if I, just, I mean, it's, it's both useful and not useful to other ind- independent developers to have these discussions because... Uh, like like Dwarf Fortress is just not really a translatable case, right? I mean, it's it's just super unusual. Uh, but at the same time, just talking about it, like, oh yeah, the conversions actually kind of work how you expect and stuff like that. I mean, people derive a lot of benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the, those discussions we certainly did leading up to this, knowing you know what does what does you know uh, not not just eight hundred thousand wish lists, but what would five thousand wish lists mean? Like, what does it actually mean? And you can uh, you can have some sense of that, and that's that's kind of nice to to kind of temper your expectations and uh, prepare for the future. One last question on this, and then I promise I'll move on. But um, you know the the I suppose the reason for publishing your numbers over the previous years, as you say, has been to sort of indicate to people when you need a bit of help, and um, so that they can pitch in and support the project and ensure its survival, all of that stuff. That's obviously now changed, right? Because I suppose you, people would assume that you're now fine to run the game forever. Are you worried that it might change how, how people deal with you, both professionally and maybe in your personal life as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you never, I mean, you hear all kinds of stories. I mean, especially about people like lottery winners and stuff, just being straight up killed by family members and so forth. Right. So it's like, uh, oh, gosh, yeah, anything could happen. Right. Um, <laughs> let's, let's hope it won't be that dark. No, no, no. Who knows? Right. Who knows? It's, you know, it's, it, it's always interesting to go to like a, you know, a, a biography or even a Wikipedia article or something. You get to the end and something has to happen. We'll see what we get. How are you trying to keep your feet on the ground through all of this? Um, yeah, I just haven't tried yet. It's still too early, especially like I say, it just transferred a couple of days ago. So we, I mean, there's no, uh, I mean, when we saw the, it's the funniest thing, like the, uh, we were trying to get the money transferred and like our bank manager wasn't authorized to do it and their manager wasn't authorized to do it. <laughs> their manager wasn't authorized to do it and their manager wasn't authorized to do it. But when finally when they went five people up, they're like, okay, we can, you know, Put it, put it in the computer, blah, blah, blah. It'll take a few hours. And then one of the people was like, or they could just use the phone app. And that just worked first time. And we did. <laughs> that seems like it might be problematic. Yeah. A little tech loophole there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you you got uh, you got takeout that first night, I take it. <laughs> yeah. No, we did. We, we had some some just kind of what our regular celebratory food would be, which is not that, that inventive. We really need to think of we just aren't we just aren't in the proper mindset I, yeah we tip well anyway yeah i don't know we aren't we aren't used to it yet and don't know how we should be thinking about it really because there's also the the project to think about right we of course yeah. we're we're paying programmers and artists and all that kind of stuff now too so it's not it's not all free money no of course i mean especially when you see all like these tech these tech layoffs and stuff um people just kind of like uh do was it because they were overextended, et cetera, or was it just some random shareholders? <laughs> to, I have no idea, but but you can kind of see now you're going to get one lump, maybe no more lumps. Who knows, right? You know, you, I mean, we don't know how this works yet. It's still too early, but now that lump needs to be managed, um, not just for us, but for the future of the project for like another 20 years or something, right? Maybe hold off the uh, metaverse version of uh, Tor Fortress for a little bit, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, loads of the whole topic. <laughs> okay, so the 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 theme of the podcast is I'm asking you to pick the five games you want to install in uh, in your very own fictional uh, games console and market to the world. Could you tell us about about your first pick, which I believe is from 1982? What when did you first encounter the game and and tell us about it? Yeah, so my my first pick is uh, Cosmic Arc. Uh, this is uh, yeah from 1982. We we had it on Atari. I don't know if it existed uh, on on other consoles and so forth. But uh, this was uh, my, one of my brother and I's favorite favorite games. This is kind of sort of representative for us of our of our console era, which you know expand you know Ataris and like a there was a Vic 20 Nintendos and things like that. But this game this game was special because. Uh, you just you're flying around in a little spaceship shooting asteroids, but then you have to go to a planet and pick up two. Of course, it's two because it's an arc. You pick up two little life forms uh, with a tractor beam while you're being shot at by lasers. But the, the the thing for us as little kids was this is the first game that we ever saw where there'd just be some random creature on a planet, and then you go to another planet and they look different. <laughs> so there's like oh there's different creatures now and then you go to the next one and there's a whole third sprite for a different creature and they just keep changing and uh it just it just kind of lit some kind of you we were like we're just post, in the post toddler phase but not too far past it and it just kind of lit this spark of possibility in us but i wanted to i wanted to shout out where it all began so, and it's quite interesting it was made by um the same guy that made missile command didn't it which is the game all about nuclear <laughs> so the nuclear war and it i remember reading that he had nightmares when he made that game because it was built right in the middle of the nuclear crisis between russia and america wasn't it cosmic arc is actually the sequel to the atlantis game where a city is obliterated <laughs> right again and then the little the little spaceship escapes at the end and i mean it was kind of i don't know if this was one of the first sort of um story sequels or something like that because you're playing this little spaceship right in the second game. Oh, okay. So it's like basically what happens when you flee Earth after a nuclear attack. Type yeah. Thing. And then you have to go get these animals, I guess, from different planets to reveal. I don't actually know what I was too young and I didn't I didn't go look it up because I didn't really want to spoil it for myself. My I mean spoil like this childhood experience. I don't know what the story was. I don't know why you were <laughs> taking these animals where you're gonna like breed up different animals and start anew on some planet, possibly. You, your household, you know, you say you were very, very young when you first started playing this game. You, it was quite a computery household, wasn't it? Why was that? So my my father was um, uh, one of the one of the people that sort of introduced computer analysis to uh, wastewater treatment. Every industry, every industry gets computerized at some point, right? And that was happening in the seventies uh, and into the eighties, and doing like cluster analysis on different uh, kind of readouts for. You know what's the, what's going on in the the activated sludge vat or whatever right now. He was trying to write computer programs that would tell you when there was you know strain on the particular sewage system in in particular areas. Yeah, exactly. Stuff that yeah, stuff that you you can you can visualize it. It had a visual component. You could you the the operators who are not you know computer trained could could see when something was wrong. <laughs> Um, rather than have to go through and do like hours of analysis or something that would just, I mean, sometimes you'd miss it or sometimes it'd be too late. Um, I'm, I'm kind of making up horror stories about sewage treatment plants in my mind right now. I'm sure it wasn't always that bad, right? Sometimes you just want to get within regulations or whatever, I'm sure. So, so that, that work came home, fortunately, not in that form, but, but in the form of, uh, of just uh, an interest in computers and 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 my father knowing that this was just going to be how the world was from now on. It was already changing, and he wanted you know the kids to be ready, ready for this this new world. And thought, yo, well, the best way to get them into this is to um, get them games, uh, games, and also teach them how to program. So you were not only early adopters, but also sort of young programmers. Yeah, yeah, basic from. As for long as I can remember, it's actually it kind of goes. It's tied into learning to read, learning to add. Uh, I kind of knew what variables were right at the same time. Really? So, yeah, it was a strange hitting algebra, and they like take you. Uh, it took took like three or four of us for out of out of grade school. Um, the the kind of kids that were going to get placed in an advanced math class and set us aside, and we're like, okay, the variable is a bucket, and so forth. Like these discussions to try and get you into how algebra works and it was the strangest conversation because i like i've been around this stuff for like eight years now (laughs) 
or something. <laughs> it was really weird. Did you find that you were, had had more knowledge than some of the people that were trying to teach you, in, certainly in terms of computer programming? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it's strange. Um, it's just a weird, weird experience going through school like that with, with just a particular skill. I'm sure it happens to a lot of people that are in different... Um, like it probably happens in music classes and stuff like that, right? Just uh, just strange things that children can be good at. Um, and, and I'm sure there's lots of kids with experiences like that. But for me, yeah, computers, um, it was, yeah, it was weird being in computer classes and being like set aside. It's like Tarn's going to have that side of the room and just work on typing at, you know, 90 words per minute or whatever, while the rest of us learn where the F key is and stuff. Your childhood was fairly peripatetic. You were, you were moving all over the place, Washington, California, New Hampshire and all over... I presume because of your your father's work. You know, what, what effect did that have on you and your brother? Do you think? Uh, yeah, no. It's I think we're still dealing with that actually, um, because yeah, it it puts a strain and obviously breaks uh, friendships, things like that. Um, but you also kind of see more of the more of the, at least the country, right? We didn't move around the world or anything, but. But I'd say New Hampshire is quite different from California. Sure. In in about every 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 way, <laughs> pretty much. Um, not not just snow, but the, like the town we moved to was like something. Out. It was like the it was like the Back to the Future town kind of. There was like one movie theater, and it was kind of living in the fifties still in a lot of ways. And compared to California, which was you know California, I think I don't know. I don't know if it's really. I mean, it hasn't really had effects. I think on how I form friendships now and stuff. But I don't feel like I have the kind of solid foundation that other people feel like they're standing on sometimes when they talk about their their childhood communities or people that they know or they have like a a facebook that's just full of people right and and stuff that they people that recontact them or that kind of i don't even have a facebook account because it's just i you know it, it didn't feel like there was something to connect back to you obviously have a close relationship with your brother you've worked together for many years and I suppose part of the effect of moving around was that it pushed you guys closer together. Do you think that's fair? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say I'd say so. The the first move, yeah, when we kind of you know all all we had was each other when we got to New Hampshire. We we you know formed friendships again, obviously, but we kind of just also like every day after school we'll go make computer games uh, during during vacations. Go make computer games. Really? <laughs> you know, I still have my old basic games. We have like eight hundred of them. 800 something like that yeah and uh they they're just they're just, I'm not talking about full games obviously cuz you can't produce 800 full games in your life but you can produce a lot of garbage and uh, we did sure <laughs> what what's your okay i mean i suppose i would ask what's the first but what's actually the one that sticks out in your mind as being something that you felt was good where after you'd finished making it i'd say there there were there was the the drag slay game obviously that the dwarf fortress was ultimately sprang out of yes dragon slayer but this was like a D rpg it had hit points which will for us uh and uh but it, it worked well i mean it was fun you you kind of go through these these sequence of battles um fighting uh monsters and then dragons every 10th battle and so forth there was equipment you could find and all kinds of strange little easter eggs of the kind that children would put in like when you kill a monster there's like a 10 percent chance that you'll have to fight maggots that come up off its body and stuff like that <laughs> very creative and there was a whole strange system of like we never had iq tests or anything we never put any stock in that stuff but for some reason it seemed to be because wizards and D are always the smart ones we put in like this iq measurement and you'd get these intelligence potions and as you drank them, your IQ would go up. And once it hit 200, you could start casting spells. But also if you got hit in the head, you lost IQ points. And so you'd kind of gain and lose access to the spell system as you proceeded through the game. And it was just a strange, a strange yeah, product of like an 11-year-old or whatever. Not many wizards on the American football team being <laughs> smacked in the head all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it chokes the brain, the... If the CTE that that was that that one definitely sticks out. Uh, there's all kinds of other ones too. Um, just these weird sort of. Uh, I mean, it was the whole era in California with you know gangster rap and stuff coming up, and the beginnings of GTA style games and stuff like that. Not not GTA itself, but just these shareware games that would float around. And we had our we took our hand at that just based on our like. Oh, you did. Yeah, just in school, just text games, right about like school stuff and just putting our friends, inserting them in, but it's all violent and right. just stupid. Text adventure for the LA riots type thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Yes. Uh, they call it juvenilia for a reason, right? So no, of course. Yeah. And I mean, you can only imagine 
writing 800 games, even incomplete ones, that's that's a pretty intense training, isn't it, to be a game developer? Yeah, yeah, and you, and you learned, and it was great to hit the technical limits, right? We had like these animated movies that would go on and on and on and on and on, and they, they had so many frames in them that you have to like chain to the next program uh, because it couldn't compile on the compilers we were using. And so you'd, you'd kind of chain 30 of them together. Uh, this, and then when we when we started programming in, in C and stuff, like the we'd hit new limits. And the computers, of course, were adding, you know, this many megabytes to the hard drives at the time. And then they had RAM and stuff, and it was going up. And, and we'd always hit the limits. It fortunately taught us how to let programs die uh, well, and how to stop them from dying eventually, which was what we, what we got to with Dwarf Fortress finally. You mean like mem- memory leaks and things yeah, like that? Yeah, just everything that can go wrong. And, and then you learn right. to optimize, you learn to, to use your resources wisely, even though these days it doesn't seem like you have to a lot of the time. Uh, we still have a lot of those instincts uh, that have kept the game alive for so long. Let's uh, let's come to your second game. Can you can you tell me about this? Do you remember when you first played it? Uh, yeah. So so this is this is uh, the game Beast. Beast is a is a is a fascinating, fantastic game from 1984. And uh, I'd, I'd recommend any person who, who, who plays Minecraft, for instance, uh, can can go look at this. Maybe you just find a video of or whatever and and kind of see what people were thinking way back then about blocks and, and moving around uh, in, in these blocky environments and, and stuff. We, so this was a shareware game, but it was, it was kind of a donation where, where they just kind of say, hey, send us 20 bucks, but you just play the game, do whatever you want. Wait, where did you hear about it, by the way? This is, I'm assuming now, because I'm, I'm, I'm the, of course, this is still when I'm young, so so the, the memories aren't perfect here, but I'm assuming this was a BBS game. So we got it off a bulletin board. Uh, there was like the Walnut Creek bulletin board in California where you just dial in with the, you know, Q modem, using your modem, hooked into a phone line on the wall and makes all those terrifying noises that people may remember or see in a in a in a in a movie or something and then you're suddenly on this what feels these days like like some kind of pirate website because you could just list games and download them but they're all i mean these, these are generally at least freeware and you just throw them on your disc you know occasionally we didn't get viruses we only maybe got one or two viruses because it just wasn't as, as big a deal back then right uh, but we we just snagged hundreds of these things Beast was a one one of these 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 first games that we played in a in a way that's probably not what the the creator of the game had anticipated or expected, but you never know. Uh, where you have these beasts, right? There's these little H's, and they wander around, and you can squish them. You can push blocks. They wander around a blocky. It's not really a maze because it's sparser than that. But there's blocks everywhere. And you can push them. You're the only one that can push them at first. And so you get them between two blocks. You squish them and you move to the next level. Then you start getting bigger beasts that have to be squished in these special squares that look kind of like lava that don't move. And then there's also beasts that can hatch from eggs, and then they can start pushing. What my brother and I would do, though, is just kind of play on a lower level, whether it just be a few of the little H's running around, and then try and separate out as much of the map as we could with a little wall and have as much building material on the left side, say, of the screen... And just build like little little rooms and, <laughs> oh my gosh. and pretend that we had a little place here where these little these little beasts were running on the outside. The game had some safeguards against this kind of behavior, uh, just to time out the game. So after you know some minutes, the beasts would start to kind of shake and explode and and blow up the sides of the uh, the sides of the little house that we were making. And so we kind of right. eventually get to the ones where they're pushing, and then it kind of destroys the house and so forth. And we kind of keep up with that, but. I mean, almost had a Dwarf Fortress feel that way. Yeah, right. Kind of... And I guess this is where you got your taste for the idea of, you know, building rooms, building building a fortress, having enemies outside the gates, all of that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was uh, it was a standout, interesting uh, kind of a, almost experimental game. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, there's there's four people were involved with it, and I don't know the story. Like, I don't know where this came from because I I I mean, there there could be predecessors to it. Or it could be that they were playing the early roguelikes and saw the maps like this and decided to do a whole new take on them. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if there was no roguelike influence. It wouldn't surprise me if it was like total roguelike influence. It really is. It could be anything. I know some of the roguelikes were before, obviously. And you could push boulders in hack. But I don't know if the pushing boulders in hack is before or after this. 
Like it's it's just a fascinating kind of um, yeah, the environmental history of kind of grid grid based pushy games. I don't know. I don't know, but I think I think Boulder Dash was the same year. So they um, you don't know how much crossover there is and how much it's just people coming up with the same sort of concepts concurrently as they can as the technology advances. No, it's, it's 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 fascinating that 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 game. So that game that game definitely sticks out. You and your brother are working on all these games as you move around the country, and um, and you settle on one that you that is going to become Dwarf Fortress. And you know what was it about that game that? Because I know it was very very different in those early days. What was it that made you think this is the one we want to keep building on? It was kind of the one that was fun, and it and and it's it's it it it, it lived in this environment of playing RPGs and roguelikes and and stuff uh, at this time that that made it kind of like okay, it's just I mean it is bog standard fantasy rpg but hey it's fun and and we can do stuff with that when i got to to high school i learned how to do c and that opened a lot of doors in terms of making the games more complex and so we made another version of drag slay which is of course short for dragon slayer if i didn't say that already that was um in 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 c now and it had a procedural map it like generated an outdoor map um when there weren't very many examples of that. There were some. You just kind of wander around fighting monsters and killing dragons and and so forth. And right. It was just super compelling. That that game, uh, because it was in C, it was harder to kind of keep alive in a sense. I, I have the source code, but we really did scuttle it into the ground um, while we were still learning how to keep games alive. When I, when I got to college and then grad school, that became the Slaves to Armot God of Blood game, which is like, okay, games are 3D now. We're going to try and make something a little more viable. And we tried to make a 3D game, a 3D RPG that was just an absolute train wreck. Mm-hmm. The the idea we knew was good. We knew from Drag Slay the idea was good. It was compelling to have a completely procedural RPG. So we started writing a bunch of side projects at that time. The Liberal Crime Squad, World War One Medic, these other games that we just released on this website. One of the, one of the side projects we made was going to be one of these beast type games right essentially you have this this game mutant minor where you dig downward uh, that that game slowly was fell apart for a variety of reasons and we zach and i had a phone call saying like okay we're gonna salvage this turn into a good side project that we finished in a couple months and we came up with the idea of having okay it's a real-time game with dwarves you do some stuff and uh, make some things get killed as dwarves do when they start digging down there and then come back with the RPG. Here it comes again, RPG. And uh, your adventure will explore this fortress that you've made. There'll be some generated diaries and stuff as well based on the events of the game. And you get all of the treasures that you made. You bring them outward, and there's your high score. We have a high score in Dwarf Fortress. And uh, that was that was going to be the game. And uh, that that's all one big through line through this kind of fantasy that then became a settlement management game, which is completely at random through this... Uh, Side project, and now that's our thing. That's the main mode. It's very strange, but that's that's how it turned out. D- during this this time, you, you know, you, like you say, you go on to grad grad school, and you're obviously a extremely gifted mathematician, and had uh, had offers from everywhere wanted you to come and study with them. To what degree did you feel pulled in more than one direction? You know, this part of you that obviously wants to go and make uh, games with your brother. And then I imagine some other expectations on you from educators or lecturers or whoever. You know, did you feel caught in that to to a certain degree? Yeah, kind of. But it was like it was like the the games. I had no no road forward with that. I never saw that as anything but a hobby. Right. So it was more like I was being pulled into the direction of being having to support myself. <laughs> as as school came to a close and uh, I needed to go get a job and doing math was like water flowing downhill for me. It was just. Uh, that was the natural direction to go. And I think like saying that I would be pulled or pushed by educators, it was kind of the opposite. I think they like, certainly my, my um, undergraduate advisor could tell something was up. I don't think they knew what it was because I never talked about the games at all. He's got a secret. Yeah. You're, if you're good, they, they, what they said to me was like, if you know, if you're, you're applying to grad school and stuff and, and to make it as a mathematician, the, the most important thing is that you have to love it. <laughs> it's like, you know, that might be an inspirational speech to someone else. But for us, it was like, okay, yes, there's something up here. I know I'm not dead as dedicated as, I mean, I'm just like, like I was just doing really well, but I wasn't spending what obviously would have been the extra time, right? Where you go home and you're like, 
oh, I'm this. these theorems are so fascinating. I want to read about some more. That was not what was happening. I was going home and I was working on the current iteration of Drag Slay and our space games and other games pretty much nonstop. That's arguably sort of practical maths, right? <laughs> you're still... You're still doing mathematics it's just it's just you're trying to build something with it right yeah yeah i mean it, it comes up the funny thing is i didn't learn linear algebra until quite a bit later so like the actual practical game math i was not good at then at that time uh and and until i started teaching it um when i went to grad school <laughs> and you had to learn it yeah yeah although yeah eventually i mean i eventually did use some math in the games i used a used a differential equation i think a total of one time what was that for that was i believe for shooting arrows in armok and getting the wind speed so that you could you could calculate where it where it's going to land or something and then I eventually we ended up estimating it anyway because it's always easier <laughs> instead of messing with any math just estimate and it's fine because no one's going to notice let's uh let's come to your your third game can you tell us about it yeah so so this is this is kind of still in the in the shareware age um of these bbs's and things but now we're not really necessarily on bbs's anymore i don't actually remember if this is the time when you could start picking things up in a plastic baggie in a store or like on a disc magazine collection like there's different ways to get games right that aren't aren't box games, uh, and we're not we're not going to get to a box game until the fourth game. Uh, so this was uh, this was Ragnarok, I believe in in Europe it might be known as Valhalla. And it's a roguelike game. I decided to put this roguelike game on the list. Um, there's any number of roguelike games that could have been on this list, but this this is the one that sticks out you you start uh you know there's a randomly generated play area you're a single character running around proving yourself killing you know four, four thousand poor creatures or whatever and then you have some giant goal that you're never going to be able to succeed in doing until you become an expert at the game right and so <laughs> the the things that stuck out a bit this one was that the the play area was a rendering of norse mythology and there were a lot of outdoor maps and just different places. There's like, I don't know how to pronounce anything, but like there's Niflheim and stuff. There's like this icy hellish place. There's um, the, the, the land where the, where the giants live. And, and for 1992, that was kind of unheard of, uh, I believe, at the time. Norse mythology wasn't big in games in the way it is today. Yeah, and even outdoor maps generation in roguelikes. It's whole, it, was a, it was kind of a lightning bolt, basically, uh, in terms of the games we had been playing. <laughs> it felt very different. And uh, so we could make these stories outside and there's I'm just just wandering around the forest and it didn't it didn't feel like there was a lot of pre time pressure. Of course, given the name of the game there, there was, in fact, time pressure and you're you're you know, you're going to have the giant battle at the end of the, uh, the game and uh, you're generally just not prepared for it unless you've been doing these quests. There were like five or six quests that you had to to complete so that your your gods would be able to fight at, at the end of the game over the rainbow bridge it was it was in, intriguing that there would be like literally every character and monster and stuff that was still alive at the end of the game would be in this final battle on this uh it was multiple screens of just full of creatures killing each other and gods fighting and stuff and you have to like deliver the objects that you had to get like you had to if, like for instance i don't know if this was even one of them but you know, if Thor needed a hammer or the, the person that got their hand bit off had to get, I don't remember if it was like a hook hand or a real hand or something, right? There's just like, you had to give them all their little things. Uh, it's, it's still a game about getting little things and giving them to people, right? Yeah. It's, for us though, the, the interaction with the, the score lists and stuff kind of had a, had a hack vibe where you like in hack, you could name the creature that killed you before it killed you, then it would be on the score list. At the top of our score list for the longest time, there was there's a kind of creature called a jackass, and I don't know what it is. It looks like some kind of quadruped. And as happens in these roguelike games, um, if you play several times in a row and you continuously die, the name of your character starts to kind of devolve. <laughs> and you're just like type a name, type a name, type a name. So sadly, at the and then and then you have a good run with a character with a terrible name, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> at the top of our list for the longest time was Fucker the Jackass. <laughs> 
That seems like it's more effort to type in than. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just get it's, it's just out of frustration. It's I guess. frustration, exactly. It's not yeah. just effort, lack of effort, but frustration. And then, of course, you have the best game you're ever going to play. And you labeled with it. Yeah, yeah. Then it's just they're staring at you with ten times the score you're ever going to get it for you know for months. Again, kind of points back to this this thing that that sort of a thread through preserving things um, about the game that you played because there's there's like a direct line from fucker the jack as being in the score list pointing straight toward legends mode in dwarf fortress right that's how it got there oh interesting <laughs> and just preserving these things so that you have you know not just the frustration when you lose but the kind of story <clears throat> of of what happened and then you could revisit it they also have a thing like that in civilization where you kind of go through the map as it, it kind of repaints the map for you as when you replay the game <laughs> uh, and, and kind of goes through important events there's there's just all these different things kind of pointing at at you know, thinking about what it means to lose a game. Yes. And how you can make that a better experience. Yeah, and uh, I suppose how you preserve the the memory and the myth of that, which is what so much of history is about anyway. How do you do that in a virtual environment? And so pay tribute to the failed attempts before you, right? Yeah, and you can do it with with graveyards and markers that you can put up. You can do so many things, and people people do this now to some extent. I think they I mean, they can do it a lot more. Mm. It's been interesting to see how board games have tried to, to introduce that with the legacy sort of versions where you, you know, the marks of previous games get left on the board for future attempts, don't they? And so you have that memory uh, that's always with you, unlike, you know, like Monopoly, which is just afresh each time. Yeah, I mean, I guess Monopoly, you should start with a uh, with a player that's better than everyone else, and then you just lose. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so coming back to the early days of Dwarf Fortress, you've got this idea for a game, like you said, that you send a dwarf down to fetch some stuff and bring it out, and there's a clear, clearly defined start and end. At some point, that that shifts to to what Dwarf Fortress becomes. How did that happen? As always happens with a new project, you know, within a week, you're like, oh, wow, this is going really fast. And we've got dwarves running around. We've got workshops. We've got them picking up little boulders that they dug in the side of the mountain and bringing them back to the workshop and making crafts out of them. And then, you know, very soon they'll be like, you know, making tables, making beds. And it's it's just going so fast. And why is it going fast? It's because we're not rendering a 3D model of a workshop when we're like, have no 3D experience and we're not trying to render 3D dwarves with animations like we had in that the 3D game we made. It just went so fast. It was such a relief and such a uh, revisiting of how our, our childhood programming worked. There was just no friction at all. And it just started scooping up ideas out of the, the RPG and putting them into this new environment, the settlement management game. Uh, suddenly they were all there, uh, having all of the little items that they would wear and doing so with fluids, uh, the magma and the water and making bridges over them. That, but that, that sense of just taking so little time to do things that had taken so much time before and how little progress we had made. Uh, in four years, four years on this on this other game, it just consumed all of our old notes and became our main project within a couple of years. It was supposed to be the two month project. We started in October of two thousand two. It was going to be done finished by Christmas as usual, right? And uh, no, no, this was the the Great War plus all the other wars all together. No finishing by Christmas. Um, still going. <laughs> right. I suppose it's that thing where on a creative project where you start to make very rapid progress and it becomes exciting and you can, and it's all working as well and feeling good. Yeah. You're really the ultimate example of scope creep, aren't you really with this game? Yeah. I mean, there are other, there are other examples. Of course we have, we have, uh, I mentioned Unreal World and NetHack is still going, I guess. Um, and uh, Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup is, 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 is from Lindley's Dungeon Crawl and that's very old, isn't it? Uh, Adam is still here, but they, yeah, it's that it's that kind of thing. I mean, I don't know who's the ultimate example, but we're all very guilty, very very guilty. Oh, at what point do you sh start showing the game to to the public? So we started it in two thousand two. I don't know if we mentioned it at that time that we were working on it because normally we just drop these things, right? Like here's Liberal Crime Squad we wrote in three weeks. Here's World War One Medic, which was a two day game. Get it, get it out there. Don't really talk about it much. People play it. And there's a few, we have a forum at this time. So there's, you know, 20, 30, 40 people. Who are following your games, basically. Yeah, yeah. Following these these games. They, they're they interested in the 3D game, but but some some fans of the other little games. And so we're like, hey, we're going to make another little game. It's going to be really cool. And then around 2004, when it had started eating up all of our development time, we just made an announcement at some point. It's like, you know, this is kind of our big game now. We're going to start releasing this. 
We're actually calling it Slaves to Armok uh, Chapter 2, <laughs> Dwarf Fortress. That's why the original had such a long name. It's because it was sort of continuing this this thread. And it's it's not untrue, right? It was continuing this fantasy game thread from way back when. It's so like Dungeons and Dragons fantasy title, isn't it, though? Like it's, yeah, oh, it's terrible. It's have, a good job you made it to all Fortress at one point. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that just happened. That just happened. That was the Steam release was when we shortened it to Dwarf Fortress. <laughs> okay. So for, yeah, for, for how many years? 18 years or whatever it's been. Slaves to Armok, God of Blood, Chapter 2, Dwarf Fortress, with at least two colons in there. <laughs> so... Yeah, no, we're lucky we didn't put one of those like accent marks just in the middle of one of the words, right? Yeah. Definitely, definitely a fantasy enterprise. Yeah. Right around that time in 2004, we put up a, a, a GIF on uh, Usenet, which still existed at the time. That was just a, an ASCII dragon shooting this fire in this animated real-time sequence that was kind of unlike anything that had been out there in the in the uh-huh. scene before. And we're like, hey, this game's coming. Uh, we didn't know that it would be coming in two years. But after it had already been in progress for two years, we finally got it out on August 8th, 2006. Let's uh, let's come to your fourth game, which I think is from 1994. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so this this game is, so we're finally getting to a, a box store game, you know. And we had these. We had lots of these coming up. We had, we had a bunch of games. Uh, you know, we we're kind of spoiled again. Like I, we were talking about our parents wanted us into computers and the computer games thing stuck, but they used games to... Uh, to do it, much to their regret for several years. This one was one of those. So we got, just got it. We were, Zach and I were both at the University of Washington at the time, uh, not 1994, but when we got it, which would be 1996, Transport Ticket. This game sucked us in so bad. Like during our first, like when I was just starting school at the University of Washington, like the first quarter, we we got sucked in this game and ended up playing it for something like 40 hours straight with one of us would be in classes or sleeping or whatever, but the other one would be playing. Just got totally sucked into this making making stuff move around and expanding out these different transport networks. Yeah, so we should explain the game just for any listeners that don't know it. Well, sorry about that. And, and, and so, so Transport Deadcoon has a, has a big, I think, procedural map, or maybe there were just a bunch of options, I don't remember. And there are a bunch of resources and, and, and resource users or something, right? So there'd be like a a coal coal mine and a coal power plant or something like that. And your your job is basically to connect them up with rail lines or connect up buses, connect up boats. I think there's planes maybe, although I get these games confused because there's quite a few of them. Trucks, trucks do like moving, trucks that move uh, freight around or whatever. So you have all of these little named things with a different year that they were made. I believe they had to change to fictitious companies at some point, but um, it'd be like, here's a bus from, you know, 1928. And you have to maintain it. And then here it goes on its route. Now 20 people are moving here, they're dropped off, and then it moves back. And you have to maintain it every once in a while. There's money in the game, of course, so you can run out of money. The thing with this game is that you're, there's kind of an AI opponent as well, uh, where it's also building a transport network and you're kind of competing with each other. And we hated that. We hated that so badly that we figured out that what you could do was if you start the game and spend just a little bit of your money surrounding the enemy headquarters with a railroad track, then they can't do anything. <laughs> and so then we played it like a sim, like how it was meant to be played. That's incredible. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the same thing we did actually did the same thing with Sim Ant. Uh, you could also just put a boulder over the enemy uh, ant mine, just pick up a rock with one of your ants and right. drop it, and then they're just turned off. And you could just be ants then after that and don't have to worry about it. I love you just breaking these games just so that you can play them the way you want to. It's incredible. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it, they finally, like Dolores, for instance, which is one of these kind of grand strategy space games that Paradox puts out, it finally had a setting for zero AI players. Right. <laughs> like, thank you so much. <laughs> just let me put a zero. If I want to put a zero, I'll play it the other way too. But, but I'll put the zero there and I could just, just, it kind of spread out and yeah. read the different stories that you all wrote and stuff and <laughs> experience the game that way without worrying about kind of falling behind the curve, right. which is always just the worst feeling for me. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Like in those civilization style games where you discover that there's a continent 
and they're just better than you. And you already lost. You didn't know that you lost 800 years ago, but you did. And then you just kind of have to experience it, which is fine. But it's- so you, you prefer to prefer to compete against yourself than against someone else, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Not really competition at all. Like, I don't think of it as like getting to the end of Transport Tycoon with the most money even, but just kind of experiencing the little trains moving around. It's like having a train set kind of. Right? Yeah, right. And, and, and Zach and I had a train set when we were little kids. And th- this was just kind of just, just watching that happen uh, in this, this environment yeah, where you can yeah. kind of manage everything. And you don't want the AI competing with you. No, no. Cause you like, you want to set up, like you, you've been working this whole time thinking about, Oh, I'm going to set up this, this coal connection or something. And then bam, there's a big red track across where you were going to put it. And like, that's not fun. It's like playing with a kid who's like a total jerk trying to ruin your, yeah, your train set. Yeah. Yeah. That's also, yeah. It's also got, you know, real life elements. We don't want real life elements in here. Like, <laughs> no one, other people just spoiling things sometimes. No, no, no. Just play the game. And uh, we kind of can't play those type of games now just because they were so dangerous and then we just burned out super hard on it. But love little things moving around, you know. <laughs> Your game comes out uh, officially in 2006, the, the, the available to the public. And um, then it's a few years later that a reporter from the New York Times magazine comes and writes a big piece about Dwarf Fortress, you know, I'm a journalist and at that time I remember that piece coming out and it being a really big deal because it was very rare for a mainstream outlet to write a very long literary piece on a video game, let alone one that was quite underground, I suppose, at the time. Can you what was that like when you when you heard from them and to be featured in such a mainstream way? Yeah, that was out of that was out of the blue too. It was just just really really surprising to, to hear from them. We've been in a few places by then, right? We'd we'd been on like game oriented sites a little bit, but not not really any kind of we just never thought there'd be any kind of mainstream attention at all and and then they 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 i think probably just sent us an email which <laughs> is like hey are you interested in doing this story and and they're like oh yeah and i typically you know stay with my subjects for a few days you know and so they, they actually flew out here and uh you know stayed in a in a hotel or whatever for you know i don't remember it was three days or something and just came over visited every day just talked about the game and stuff i mean you quickly abandon this like a lot of people think they're going to be kind of oh we'll just i'll just be a fly on the wall and watch you work right it's not it just does not work with this kind of uh this kind of job because you're just going to see someone sitting in front of a computer saying damn it damn it like every 35 <laughs> minutes or whatever it's just like it's just does it quickly quickly doesn't turn into that and then it just turns into interviews and talking about the game and that's what the article ended up being is just this really interesting kind of history of what was going on and how things were going and yeah the, uh, this was written by uh, we should say jonah weiner yeah jonah weiner weiner yeah and 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 uh yeah they just contacted it's funny because they just contacted me today they sent an email congratulating me on the uh, oh nice and we haven't talked for years yeah and uh, they were just like hey congratulations and uh there's a, there's been quite a bit of that lately. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the congratulations on the launch here, but yeah, at the time uh, that was yeah just a uh, yeah we actually made a little like wall hanging out of like the cover of the magazine and the pictures in there. That it was it was funny because they the uh, the art department there wanted some some kind of like pictures of us that were sort of stylized, and we ended up making ASCII versions of our faces. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, I actually wrote the program that 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 did that. Nice, and and it was it was, yeah it was fun to fun to send that along and then of course immediately after that was like the 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 museum of modern art i think probably very related to the fact that that we did get into that magazine how did your community of players react to sort of having the world's attention on them all of a sudden because i know sometimes you know communities that are you know i suppose over in a corner having having their own time over there and you know perfectly happy to suddenly have you know this beam of attention on them it's not always a positive thing perhaps but i think they were happy no they were happy they're happy to see it because um you know it correlates to how well we're doing and since we've been publishing publishing our numbers obviously and you see a bump or whatever right. um they're just like great. The game's going to keep going, <laughs> and yeah, there, yeah, yeah. It was, it was funny too because I, I think it mentioned something about us drinking drinking soft drinks in there, which was only half true um, at the time in the in the in the article because um, we had left just a bunch of random drinks in there, you know, in case they wanted one. We had no idea what people drank. Obviously, you don't just leave out soft drinks for people, but we did. And so they're like, the, these poor boys, you know, obviously this soda addiction is going to get to them eventually, and. Uh, 
Yeah, so then the, the fans were all worried about us after that. <laughs> Said the use of like healthy orange juice and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting because it was, we got that kind of attention just like from New York and stuff before we had met anybody in the industry. It was so so strange um, that like the first industry people we met was actually uh, flying out to Iceland to meet the people that made Eve Online because they all they also got into the museum. CCP. Yeah, yeah, CCP. We also just had like a museum buddies uh, thing during one of their big fan fests, and then we started meeting people after that. Yeah, I mean he, he, that's interesting because Eve Online is another game that gets written. It gets covered obviously by the video game press, but it also has a lot of attention from mainstream outlets because I suppose it's you know doing interesting social things and uh... yeah yeah well the thing is yeah even even with the big game and the big games get covered sometimes but there's there without the kind of procedural elements you know either within dwarf fortress it's kind of inside the game and in eve you've got this mmo style um sort of procedural elements of people just making these stories interacting with each other there's there's just more to chew on for a longer period of time so it can kind of build up yes whereas with a with a kind of prestige triple a game You'll have a build up to it and people will play it, but there's not much to say about how people are playing it unless it does have uh, kind of some weird standout element that causes a, a community that maybe the developers weren't even expecting or something like that. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and I, I suppose as well, there's the factor of you know, the people making Call of Duty or FIFA, they don't they don't need to speak to a journalist, <laughs> do they? They're going to they're going to be fine. Even, you know, not taking any press. So. Yeah, and I'm sure, I mean, they do probably coordinate stuff and that kind of thing or whatever, and, and that's just how it's done. Whereas, yeah, with us, we're just kind of waiting for people to reach out. Although that wasn't true of the Steam release. We actually, I mean, Kit Fox did a lot of legwork getting getting stories together. It's kind of a, just a big change. All yeah, yeah, you're becoming a, becoming a, a mega core. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Our triple I days slowly beginning here. Okay, now let's, uh, why don't we come to your fifth and your final game? Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so this one I I I I wanted to put in um, both a game from the two thousands, which I hadn't done, <laughs> but also just one of my favorite games um, that that is interesting in the way we like things to be interesting, which is uh, Caves of Cud. Caves of Cud is a roguelike game uh, that takes place in the distant future. It's like if you've if you've read uh, the Gene Wolfe novels that take place, you know, billions of years in the future, like the New Sun or, or that kind of thing. So just just a strange mixture of of almost fantasy level mutations and things, but just technology as well, right? And beautifully written, which is unusual for a roguelike game, but they have they have actual writers working. Uh, on it and uh, somehow still manages to work with the procedural stuff and the fact that they've got like text generators thrown in there too you know from Markov chains to the more advanced stuff that you you see you know these days uh, doing procedural books that you can find right and you you kind of can 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 play the game also as kind of them it's not necessarily a permanent death roguelike game where you just play and die and restart although it has that you can also have save points and stuff so there's different ways to play the game so you shouldn't be should be frightened off by the roguelike the the roguelike label, which often means that it's going to be a frustrating game. It's just not, uh, and it just just it was, it's great to see that they they started around the same time we did. Right, this is a game that that was began in two thousand seven, and it's kind of approaching its one on Steam now. It's on Steam <laughs> when originally it was just kind of not just distributed through their website and stuff. Yeah, I had early access in twenty fifteen, I think. Eight years, right? And uh, so I, I, I really dig the setting, uh, dig the the kind of presentation, the writing, the soundscape is is amazing. There's even a mode of the game where there's no fighting at all. You can just wander through the world and, and kind of get experience style points that you still need to open up abilities and stuff just from exploring. But you can just kind of chat with people and cook with them and stuff, and it all holds up because the uh, the game is 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 written with enough detail for it to hold up, which is a thing a problem that we also have over in our adventure mode, which is not yet released on Steam. It's kind of the the RPG part of Dwarf Fortress that we were talking about before. 
I, it's like the the combat is easy to set up because people understand like like people hitting each other right it's, yeah it's pretty simple to set up but anything else you want to do you suddenly fall into like problems with language or problems with displaying problems with what's your control scheme or what actions can you do where you suddenly have to invent it instead of following behind people that came before and um, yeah, yeah you know they've they've made some good good strides with this game that we're also kind of trying to do in different directions it's kind of a standout game in this sort of new procedural direction that things are going and i i wanted to throw it on my console yeah i think this game was inspired by dual fortress but then is in turn you know in in the ways it's evolved and built on the things that you've done in in different ways to how you have it's now inspiring you back again how, how have you felt about you know that I suppose the great many games, most famous of which is Minecraft, of course, that have that have taken varying degrees of influence from your work. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's just just part of the process. It's always kind of gratifying, I guess, to see to see that we have this impact on people, and it, it's it's uh, it's kind of awesome to be the at the beginning of what seems like a settlement management game genre explosion. I mean, there there's obviously games that came before in the kind of like like Caesar walking around type thing or the dungeon keeper type genres. I don't think we really invented the genres. People sometimes say that. I don't think uh, that's quite uh, the case, but it's, it's certainly like we had, yeah, we had a huge impact on this and it's nice to see people, people in, in other games too, you know, as far flung as the, the Sims, you know, out there taking, taking a few, a few little bits and pieces here and, and seeing homages in world of Warcraft and other places uh, that people obviously play the game a little bit. We all play each other's games and stuff. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's just great. This whole, this whole, you know, conversation we're having is kind of predicated on us having our giant list of games, you know, well beyond five, obviously, that made Dwarf Fortress what it is. And of course, mm. in these, in these conversations, you can also get sucked into like games, inspiring games as if it's an insulated thing. But, um, you know, obviously there's, there's everything else. Other things coming in. I, I assume you play Dwarf Fortress as, as well as making it and and have your own sort of um, save and everything. What do you, what's the oldest settlement that you've managed to maintain? Do you remember when you started it? This this is this is funny, but that's not me. I mean, I don't get a chance to play long settlements in Dwarf Fortress because you have to fix things or tweak things that you see, and it gets really frustrating. And then yeah, it's it's funny because <laughs> my brother and I set out to like let's make a game that we can just play right. Because it's so procedural that you you know you can surprise yourself, um, and uh, then you know you just get in this position where it's so it's your job or whatever, and you want to fix things, and you can't enjoy it. You just see the things that you want to fix. It's a little different with the RPG because it's so it's so fast. Like like right. like Guardian Adventure mode, you don't survive very long because there's no hit points generally. Yeah, so so that that we could do, um, and we're we're we'll try and get that out on Steam. Uh, this year if we can and then maybe i'll be able to get back into my own game it'd be cool I'd i mean i like it i think it's pretty cool okay so you've got on your on your console we've got cosmic arc beast ragnarok transport tycoon and caves of quid have i said that right i'm not sure they even know how to say it cut is what people usually say <laughs> but people okay. have people can say as they like um so i'm going to put you on the spot slightly we need to we need to come up with a name for your console that we're going to package it in and sell it to the world um can you have you got an option for us? Uh, I mean, I like. See, I I, I was thinking I, that, that it would just make sense to call it the the losing is fun console. Yes. So that's of course the the tagline from Dwarf Fortress. Losing, that's right. Losing is fun. Losing is fun, and I think with all of these games, except for Transport Tycoon, losing is fun. But like Transport Tycoon sticks out as maybe losing's not fun there. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll uh, that's like the the bonus game or something. But yeah, Cosmic Arc is it's like it's it's like even though the game you just get hit by asteroids or something, there's still it feels like you're ending a story. It's like the uh, it's 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 still good to get to eventually get blasted out of space. Beast, of course, we talked about how how great it was to lose. Not if you play it traditionally, losing is not as fun, but but if you play it non-traditionally. Ragnarok and Caves of Cut are both roguelikes, and losing is fun is baked into the DNA of roguelikes um, because you'll tell stories about how terrible uh, you played and yet another stupid death, as they call it, right? Yeah, I think it's a good death. Okay, the losing is fun console. Okay, sounds good. Um, just before I, I let you go, you, you said right at the beginning of the conversation that sort of the, your path that you took, you know, your, your career is sort of, 
unreplicable in a way because I suppose it's, you know, the things that have happened that have enabled Dwarf Fortress, you know, are, are of their time in some way. But what might you say to a pair of young brothers who are coming up with stories and maybe wanting to start making their own games? How might you encourage them to to find their way to some some taste of the success that you've enjoyed uh yeah you just have to you have to keep making games i mean there's really there's really no no substitute for practice um and then you know monetizing like like you just don't worry about it right now uh just try and keep your keep it keep it as a side gig is what i would do for until you feel like you can see a path forward like we did when like, cause things change so much. Like if we, if we had tried to monetize Dwarf Fortress in, you know, 1995 or something, we would have been shipping it out with like paper printed manuals and stuff, which would not have really worked for us, I think. But when, when we put out the game was right when we had things like PayPal tip jars, which is what we survived on for a couple of years. Um, just the, just the tip jar and then subscriber services like Patreon and stuff came up and then we got on that and that became our main, our main source of income. And then of course, uh, steam after that and, and the steam, like for us, steam would not have been an option that was super viable from the beginning, but because of games that we, we've, you know, alluded to here, like RimWorld, Nomoria, Prison Architect, there's a large base of Steam players ready to play Dwarf Fortress and they know the conventions. You just have to be mindful. I mean, it's you have to be mindful and smart about what you're doing uh, and um, learn how to interact with online communities and build a build an online community. That's how we got we got started. And it's it's difficult to do these days. The conditions are so different, like discoverability is so hard these days. Yeah, whereas right. before, we could put up our webpage and somehow like these these search engines just kind of found it, right? And then, then we, then people came immediately. Yeah, yeah. It only took like a few days, and people were on our forum and people stuff. People would Google "cool game" and they'd arrive at your website. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, oh, there's, there's, yeah, my website is number nine on Altamira or Lycos or something, right, or whatever. But, but the thing is, you know, that doesn't mean there's not a path forward for people who are starting now. Uh, it just means you have to look for it, uh, and it's going to you know, be potentially very difficult. Uh, like it was for us in ways uh, where I mean, I kept this job that I didn't like for quite a long time. Uh, and, um, you know, that's, that's, I mean, we're, we're privileged in a lot of ways uh, that, you know, we have to keep that in mind, obviously. Like people aren't just like trained on computers as kids generally, although maybe they are now. Not in the same way, I don't think. Yeah, you're fairly, fairly unique. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, so it's just, I mean, there's a lot of things that add up like that, but at the same time, I don't think it's I don't think it's hopeless for people. There's a lot of people that have kind of entered entered indie games, um, and and are still here. It, a lot of people are not going to make it. Um, like, there's a lot of games that just launch on Steam and sell you know 20 copies, and that's it. But the the so I'm not sure who I'm speaking to here because like if I were speaking to myself, it just wouldn't matter because you couldn't stop stop me from trying. Right. Right. Yeah. Maybe that's the key. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I mean, it could have gone badly. Obviously, I mean, I when I when I quit my math job to work on Dwarf Fortress, it was before Dwarf Fortress was even released. I didn't care. That could have ended immediately and badly. It's the kind of decision you can only make at a certain point in your life, isn't it? When you're, you know, young, basically, and yeah, f yeah. F few few fewer responsibilities at least. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, brilliant. I've absolutely loved talking to you. So thank you so much for, for your time of coming on and for sharing your story and your games with us. I really appreciate yeah, it. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with the format too. Oh, thanks, Todd. Thank you to my guest, Tarn Adams, co-creator of Dwarf Fortress. When I was uh, preparing to speak to Tarn, I went back and reread Jonah's piece in the New York Times magazine about Dwarf Fortress, written in 2011. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a wonderful piece of writing. I will, I will tweet it out, but uh, you can search for it. And I wrote to Jonah just to tell him how much I enjoyed that piece, both at the time and, and returning to it now. And uh, he sent me a message back and saying that's one of my favourite things I've written in no small part because I've never met anyone like Tarn and Zach. Tarn's a true eccentric genius and very sweet. It couldn't have happened to two cooler people. And I think uh, having listened to Tarn talk about his journey and his game 
uh, I think probably most of us today would, would agree with that assessment. Thank you for listening this far into the podcast. Thank you to those of you who have been writing in to suggest future guests. Please continue to do so. Uh, send You can send me messages at myperfectconsole at gmail.com or on Twitter at myperfectconsole with the O's removed from console. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Simon Parkin. If you would like to support the podcast financially, then please head to Acast Plus, search for My Perfect Console, and there there'll be a little button uh, where you can become an early access supporter. You will get uh, episodes 24 hours before they go out to the public and also a guarantee of not having any streaming ads as well. And uh, that's for just £3 a month, I think. So less than a pound, a dollar per episode. Um, But of course, there's all sorts of demands on our time and money these days. So uh, don't feel any pressure. Just enjoy the podcast in whatever way feels appropriate. And uh, I'm just glad to have you along for the ride. We will be back next week with... Hey, new guest, and there are five games and one more perfect console. Until then, have a wonderful week. <laughs>